It's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today, but don't worry. I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Welcome back, new American investors. On this Fast Money Special Report, we're dedicating a bonus hour to help you find opportunities in the market right now. Stocks on the big show tonight. Palantir, Tesla, GameStop, Apple, Neo, Virgin Galactic, and this. Interest payments, old or retro. Recording artist Cassius Cuvay on his SPAC dreams and trades. What's in the bag? Guess how much you're really paying. Hey there, I'm Melissa Lee. Jim Cramer is off tonight, running alongside me tonight. Guy Adami, Nadine Terman, and Delano Sapporo. Let's get right to it. Palantir, one of the most actively traded stocks today, up 15%. Let's get straight to Kate Rooney, who's got all the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Palantir was one of the most active stocks and the talk of online trading forums today. It was one of the most mentioned companies on Reddit and Twitter, according to alternative data firms. And to give you a little taste of what was being talked about, there was a Hamilton-themed rap about the stock going viral. It was made about a month ago, but it's trending today among the top Palantir posts. You may have heard a reference in there to something called diamond hands. And if you're not familiar with Wall Street bets, that essentially means holding on to a stock no matter what. There's also more serious discussions on Reddit about some of the fundamentals around Palantir and earnings. But some on Reddit are skeptical, saying that it's just people jumping from the GameStop bandwagon over to Palantir. And finally, Kathy Wood getting a lot of mentions today after disclosing that ARK Invest's flagship fund bought Palantir this week. Retail investors are known to piggyback on her positions. Melissa. I wonder what Lin-Manuel Miranda thinks of that. Kate, thanks so much. (laughs) Kate Rooney. Delano, I will go to you to open it up. What do you think of Palantir? I thought the song was great, by the way, and thanks, Melissa. Um, you know, I think one thing, the earnings loss didn't deter some investors. As you mentioned, Kathy, uh, obviously a great investor, innovative investor, jumped in on the stock, on the softness, on the weakness um, from the unexpected earnings loss. But I think a couple things that were catalysts, uh, as mentioned by management, is spending for, for growth. So what does that mean? Are they possibly looking to diversify the concentration of revenue, which is obviously heavy towards the government side? Uh, but on the other flip side, on the flip side of the coin, that could be a good thing. If you have a state revenue stream, obviously, with, you know, the great one of the greatest, the greatest country in the U.S. backing you um, in certain in your revenue stream, that could be obviously a good thing. So investors, especially for the long term, I know it's a sexy name. I know a couple of my clients are really into the stock. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish uh, generally because I think, you know, long term, there's still some things that need to be shaken up, but it, it looks good long term. Guy, I know you've liked Palantir for, for a while. I don't know if you're writing rap songs or we can call you Diamond Hands on this one. But what do you think of it now, especially given the lockup expiration, which allows virtually every single share uh, that was locked up to be sold. Well, first, it's just an honor to be with you on this special show. I got my clocks a little mixed up, as you can tell. (laughs) And how come we don't get that fancy playing music for Fast Money like we did for this show? I want to speak to management. I'll do that afterwards. In terms of Palantir, I know you know this, and clearly Kathy Wood does as well. 
Uh, Palantir was the P in my hope trade for 2021, and I'm going to stand by it. You mentioned the lockup. You're right. But I think the move from 38 to 25 basically encompassed that. And if you listen to what Palantir is saying, you know, they're going to try to scale down some of their products for those medium-sized businesses. I think that's going to go a long way. Christopher Merwin at Goldman Sachs, I just think, put a $34 price target on it, a buy recommendation. By the way, Merwin, not to confuse with Merlin, as you know, uh, Tim Robbins' great character in Top Gun 30-odd years ago. I know one of your favorite movies, Mel, and I can't wait for the remake Maverick. With that said, I think you buy Palantir here at these levels. I think it goes higher. A whole new generation will be introduced to the uh, wonder of Top Gun. Um, Nadine, where do you stand on Palantir? You like Palantir as well. It's interesting um, that people like Palantir, they like the fact that they are investing, that it is for the long term. But short term, investors you know, did not like that reaction at all. You're right, Melissa. And so what we try to do is just what Kathy does, is when there is weakness or when you can see some softness for a short period of time, pick it up if you like the long-term asset of it. Especially with Palantir, $2.8 billion backlog, this is an execution play. And this is under the control of management. It's not uncontrollables uh, on their end. And we like that type of bet. So just like Guy and Delano said, this is something that you could buy and hold. And I think one of the risks has been that it, it is a sexy stock. So it needs to also get the attention of more core holders. And once you do that, especially now that Kathy is in, I think you could see this widen to a, a greater audience of people wanting to invest to the intermediate long term. Yeah, we, we talk about uh, EFG investing a lot uh, in the five o'clock hour. Um, Delano, I'm curious to get your take on this because George Soros uh, is an investor in Palantir. It has been an investor and he has at every opportunity that he could sold shares and has broadcasted publicly that he would like to sell every share that he owns of Palantir because uh, of the moral and ethical dilemma that he faces in holding the shares. Could that actually be, um, you know, a strike against Palantir, particularly amongst this new sort of crowd of investors who are more tuned to, to ESG concerns? I would 100% say, not specifically just the Palantir, but when I'm listening to clients or prospective clients, they bring up that concern that they want to be environmentally sound. They want to put their dollars to work behind companies that they fundamentally believe in. So if you're seeing more of a shift to that, um, you have to, as all companies have to be aware of, are we make, making sure that we're reaching an audience and younger investors that are very comfortable stating their concerns about what the companies are doing? So not specifically to Palantir, but just generally, I think people are waking up to that. They want their dollars behind companies they believe in, not just for the performance, but also for what they're doing socially, morally. That is super important, especially for younger investors. The P in your hope trade guy might not qualify for ESG. Oh, come on. I mean, cut me a little slack here at 6 o'clock on a Friday. The P in my hope trade falls right into ESG, in my opinion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it the guy ESG spec and put Palantir in the radar screen, Melms. Yeah, all right, fine. Um, but for the people who are concerned about value, higher valuation stocks at a time when higher interest rates are putting some pressure on them, Nadine, could this fall into that basket? I mean, I don't think that it falls into the same thing that you talked about before, looking at Apple or Adobe or other types of businesses that it might have been kind of with the same painted with the same brush today. Um, I think this really is about understanding what they do and believing that the business model is going to compound for investors. I think it is a fundamental play and an execution play. I actually think on this one in particular, it's a little bit less of an ESG play. All right. Well, take a look at this. Palantir also happens to be 
the top stock on SwaggyStocks.com. That's an aggregator of Wall Street bets sentiment. This is a live look right now at, at the sentiment on WSB. The list includes Tesla, Apple, Neo, and yes, still GameStop is up there. So why don't we take a look at, at some of these names? Um, let's start it off with, with Tesla. Nadine, where do you stand on Tesla? Tesla's a harder one because it's a passion play for a lot of investors. So for those folks who are doing fundamental investing, I think it's less of a focus on this. You know, when we run it through our risk ranges, it's actually pretty good right now. It's at a like up 11, down seven. So it's a volatile stock. So you have to be able to call it stomach that type of volatility. But that's pretty good odds. Um, but in terms of, you know, do we own it? We don't own it. Um, but I think that as an investor, if you need to be benchmark oriented, it's obviously something that you have to be able to trade around. Yeah. Guy? Agreed. You go back to May of last year, I think it was May 3rd, when Tesla pre-split was trading at an all-time high of around 703. And Elon Musk tweeted about his stock, I'm paraphrasing, being too expensive or too high or something to that effect. The stock went down for a day. And, you know, a week later, it was probably north of 800. That told me all I need to know. Listen, this is one of Kathy Woods. This, she made her name on the back of Tesla. I think she believes this thing is probably a 10-bagger from here. And she's probably going to wind up being right. There's going to be some pain along the way. But I think that May date taught you everything you need to know about the stock. And I think the stock is still viable at these levels. Delano, I'm curious where you stand on Tesla because I know that you hold NEO. Yep. Yeah, Melissa, we also hold Tesla. I'm actually kicking myself because I feel like I wasn't in earlier as I should have been just based on, you know, looking at the valuation and kind of getting scared off at some points. But you're holding it for clients, holding it personally. Um, and obviously, as mentioned prior by the rest of the panel, it probably going higher. And there may be pain along the way, but there's long term realization possible for some of the things that are, that are going down the pipeline for Tesla. So I am holding you know, obviously, um, investing in NEO is a belief in, in the EV market in China. So to borrow a, a game from the five o'clock show guy, would you rather Tesla or NEO as a play on the China <laughs> EV market? That's, a, that's fantastic. I think that's a great question. I think NEO has just upgraded it no more. I think $104 price target-ish. I think the market cap right now is more, uh, I think, GM is a $75 billion market cap. I think Neo's north of $80 billion. Ford's probably half of that. Um, I think, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think it is Neo. I think the optionality and the more beta is probably in Neo at these levels. So despite the fact that I do like Tesla in hmm. the Would You Rather game, which I play better than almost anybody, I think it's Neo. I would dispute that, but I'll go to Nadine. You're, you're nodding, I think, in agreement with Guy, Nadine. I don't, you know, I'm just looking at our current trade ranges on that. It's a two to one, which is higher than Tesla. So, um, you know, if you're just going to be trading it, which I think it's if you would rather, right? Because would you rather make money or less money? I'd rather make more money. I'd make, I'd buy Neo because it is better in terms of the momentum of the stock and, and the asymmetry from here. So that's what the rest of the would you rather is. Would you rather make more money or would you rather make less money? I was always wondering all these years. I've, I've been wondering that. Um, let's get to Apple here, which has been an underperformer uh, this week. Delano, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting that Apple is, you know, kind of a less sexy name right now. Um, but I think, you know, the underperformance is a little bit overwrought. I think there's opportunity for long-term holders to buy in. Obviously, you will see share price appreciation. If you look, take the chart back further, you'll definitely see that. Obviously, you have for, for people that want the cash flow of dividends. And they have the record um, 
quarter last quarter with 111 billion in revenue and that was kind of a blip on the radar for them so i think there's a lot of things going on also the cash pile we talk about it every quarter the large cash pile um but for lack of a better term it's really like an arms chest what can they do with that there's different plays that they're talking about we saw them rise on the electric vehicle um opportunity or partnership so there's different things that can be done with that cash pile. i think that's a very interesting point to look forward in the future but i'm definitely long and, and bullish on apple all right i want to get to gamestop because it is the number two stock on swaggy stocks when it comes to sentiment. Um, so I, I, I will go to you, Guy. Um, you know, in the, in the hearings, um, Kitty, Roaring Kitty, Keith Gill, said that he is as bullish as ever on GameStop. He's still long. What do you think of the story? <laughs> was that, what was that in the cat. background? Was, was that, I mean, who, who dropped that sen- <laughs> The cat. You know, if Vince Gill gets bullish on GameStop, maybe then I'll get on, on board. But, you know, hello, Kitty, or goodbye, Kitty, or goodnight, Kitty. I'm sure, listen, good for him. I'm sure he has the fundamental story behind him. Um, but I think I think we round-tripped this thing. You know, it started, started at 12. I think it probably ends there. I might be wrong, and I'm not saying short this thing because you see where that gets you, but... Yeah, I, I'm hard-pressed to believe that the, the fate of GameStop is fundamentally different than it was six months ago. I agree. But the fact that it's held on to a certain level, Nadine, does that, does that change how you look at the stock at all? The fact that it's still at 40 after all of this? I'll say that we did own it. And then once it started going away from fundamentals to just call it um, power of capital trading, uh, we exited for clients. So um, this is not something that I would put clients in right now, but it doesn't mean you can't trade it. I look at it and it's almost a two to one, but the type of volatility I'm looking at is it could be up 73% or down another 40%. Those are the types of things, I mean, we don't do it. We are much more about compounding, call it um, asymmetric, really understanding the bets that we're making. And this is not something fundamental. So I agree with Guy, but for a little bit different reason, this is just not something I'm playing right now. The kitty says that there is a fundamental case for it, Delano. I'm more of a dog person than a cat person, <laughs> but I will say, um, I was on the sidelines on this, um, and it's just basically same issues, same same sentiments mentioned prior. Um, something that's a little bit too volatile for my take and something that I would put investors in or clients in for the long term. Um, so I was, I was on the sidelines and stayed on the sidelines on this, on this trade. All right. No cats were harmed for this segment, by the way. Still to come on this Fast Money special, the new American investor, the recording artist and investor who dreams of SPACs. He will join us live. Check it out. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Check out MGM cranking higher today. But Entain, which co-owns BetMGM with MGM Resorts, has just launched a program to intervene with those that might have a problem with video gamers and esports. The scientist advising them has been studying gaming and behavior addiction for decades. He says categorically it is gambling. I mean, obviously, with this week's hearings and, and the parallels that people are making between trading on platforms like Robinhood and gambling, we ask this question broadly, who should be responsible for one's behavior? It's interesting that they are launching this as a formal effort guy to intervene for people uh, who have problems. Yeah, we talked about this last night on Fast Money. You brought up a great question. Uh, you asked... Uh, you know, why then wouldn't you intervene or have similar disclosures on auto loans or mortgages or all types of different things? I think you made a great point uh, with Mr. Pitt that was on the show last night. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think people should be responsible for their actions. But with that said, 
Uh, gambling is an addiction, and it can absolutely manifest itself into the stock market. And I think the period of time between March and basically August when professional sports and college sports were on hiatus, I think people found the stock market for a number of different reasons, not least of which the availability of a Robinhood app. Maybe Dave Portnoy helped in that uh, capacity as well. And by the way, I think it's good that a lot of people have been acclimated to the stock market. And fortunately, some people learn the hard way. But that being said, I think for many people, uh, this has become another form of gambling because just like you can bet on the Nick game tonight on your phone, you can do similar with GameStop and all these different names. So uh, there is the lines have absolutely been blurred. Yeah. Make no mistake, though. I'm sure there are hedge fund traders out there who are, you know, if you're going to call investing or training an addiction, they might be addicted to Nadine. So I don't know where this stops. (laughs) That's a fair point, Melissa. But I think Guy makes a lot of good points here. You know, we were just talking about the upgrade on DraftKings from Oppenheimer. And one of my issues with thinking ahead on a stock like that, and it, it gets to this point, you know, of the research with MGM, is that, you know, people have been locked down for the last year or so. And that has exacerbated a lot of these riskier behaviors, whether you could consider that in the stock market. Um, you could consider it in other types of behavior like drinking or in gambling like this with um, online for esports. And so I think as investors, we have to think through um, obviously, there's the social and moral aspect of it, but there's also the reopening play. When everyone's getting out and they're going to travel and do other things and be in nature, um, are they going to be continuing the same behavior? So I- I'm not so convinced that they will. I could bring my phone to nature. My phone goes to nature. It it, it works in nature. Um, Let's move on here. Citadel CEO Ken Griffin was on Squawk Box this morning talking about how the Reddit investor crowd should not be underestimated because they are simply investing differently. I will say is that it's unclear the power of the Reddit community. That, That will play out over time as we see them converge around other securities, other situations, and the price impact that they have as a community. I think the GameStop situation is incredibly unique in that it was such a heavily shorted stock and there were some real potential drivers for change. In another part of the interview, he says uh, to Andrew Ross Sorkin, who did that really good interview, uh, he said basically, you know, if you're going to operate on the same turf, maybe a grandma won't win. But a grandma might see her grandson driving a Tesla and say, you know what, that seems like an interesting company for the future. Buy Tesla. And in that case, if the grandmother did that, she would have beaten Citadel over the past five years. And he does admit that. So playing a different game Investors can actually see future trends, which they may be better at doing. Delano, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what Mr. Griffin had to say. I will say that I've been critical of kind of the fast pace um, day trading things that I've seen just from, you know, people in my network that I felt didn't really have a plan. And as a planner, as a, in a personal behavior point, and as a profession, as a financial planner, I always want to feel that the people have a plan. But now I'm, I'm walking a lot of that back because, one, you can't argue with performance. You know, I played football, and, you know, it doesn't matter if the person's the smallest person on the field or the biggest person on the field. And if they're out there and the smallest person on the field is performing better than the biggest person on the field, they're going to get more playing time. Um, and so that's the same thing applies here. If we're seeing younger people that are getting invested, that are trading, using different tactics, strategies, and they're, you know, under understand the risk and they're using their own capital to do so. And sometimes, some case performing, some case not performing, but learning lessons
distance from the not performing, then I'm all on board for that. But there are going to be diversions of people where there's people that will have time with the new stay-at-home, work-from-home area to do those things, other people that still want a professional to work with them when it comes to their long-term strategy. So I think you will see a, a large divergence when it comes to that. Yeah. Nadine, you raised your hand. Sure. You know, I'm all for the democratization of the markets and trading, but I live just a couple blocks from the headquarters of Robinhood. And I can tell you the people traveled thousands of miles and they're picketing out there. And it's not to say that, you know, what Robinhood did or how it's run is good or bad, um, but people's lives have been impacted and they necessarily didn't understand what they were doing. So I think there has to be a look into um, what is driving this type of behavior is it right? So again, I'm all for everybody having access, cheap trading and the like, but if there are hidden things that are making them do things that otherwise that they weren't aware of, then I think it does have to be reviewed. There should be some rules around it. And I think everyone can agree that then let's let everything open up. And I think we're going to find that this new area of investment from a group that maybe didn't have as much power or, or consolidated voice from a few years ago is going to be really important to understand. We also saw that a client asked us, can we offer up some of our trading ranges to people outside the firm for that very reason? They do want to take control of their trading and investing, but they need a little bit of help to understand how to use some professional tools to make maybe more educated bets and investments. All right. Coming up on Fast Money, the new American investor, the very new idea of cryptocurrencies meets the old idea of interest accounts. But if something as old is cool again, is it retro? We'll explore that. Plus, Fact Dreams, rapper investor Cassius Cuvay will join us live. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, the new American investor. Bitcoin hitting another milestone again today, reaching a market cap of more than $1 trillion. Then there is this, in case you missed it, Elon Musk updating his Twitter profile. Take a look at that. Uh, that is a Bitcoin with a little anime person there, and he tweeted out when, when the picture changed just for a day, whatever that means. Cryptocurrencies are developing a whole new business ecosystem around them, and like many things, everything old is new again. For more, let's bring in Flory Marquez, the co-founder of BlockFi. Flory, great to have you with us. It's great to see you, Melissa. It sounds like you're trying to be a bank built on Bitcoin. Can you sort of describe what you do and how you do it? Yeah. So back in 2017, my co-founder and I realized that in order for the ecosystem of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to grow, both retail investors and institutions would need access to financial products. And that's really what we know how to build. So at BlockFi, we're really trying to bridge traditional finance with crypto. And we offer that through a retail platform that allows retail investors to send crypto and cash that gets converted into crypto and access things like interest accounts. And on the institutional side, we innovate and we create financial products that make it easier for institutional investors to get access to the space through things like the Bitcoin trust. Right. Um, I'm curious uh, with Bitcoin where it is right now, Flory, because one of your products is is allowing people to borrow against their Bitcoin holdings. So you don't have to liquidate. Let's say you wanted to make a big purchase. Um, you can borrow against your your wallet or your holdings. Um, have there been more requests for that? Is that sort of a booming part of your business as we see Bitcoin reach these prices? <laughs> yeah, I'm smiling because it's just been insane at BlockFi. We've had 50 percent month over month growth just two months in a row. And to your point, when people are holding Bitcoin, um, a lot of people have invested really early on and they want to access liquidity without selling. 
So that product, the loan product that allows you to borrow against Bitcoin um, is extremely unique because actually today, banks still don't include cryptocurrencies as part of your underwriting when they're looking to give you a mortgage or other types of financial products. So if you're looking to get liquidity, your options are very limited. And that's really where BlockFi comes in. So we've seen exponential growth in our loan portfolio. I believe it's almost doubled month over month as wow. people are like looking to take advantage of that liquidity. How much does it cost? I mean, what is the rate that you'd pay if you're borrowing against your Bitcoin holding? And does that rate change depending on the volatility of the coin? It does depend on the volatility of the coin. But as of today, we offer it to the coins with the largest market cap. And that's Litecoin, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And rates start as low as 4.5 percent and go all the way up to around 10 percent. And the thing that's really interesting about the loan product, if you're a lending nerd like I am, is we've been lending since January of 2018. And as you mentioned, the price of Bitcoin is extremely volatile. And we've actually never had a default loss in that entire period because we've been able to manage the portfolio and get access to the liquidity that we need because crypto trades 24-7. So mm -hmm. it's an amazing product both from the investor side and the retail side. So you can't borrow against a Dogecoin wallet? Uh, not on BlockFi <laughs> today. <laughs> All right. Flory, great to speak with you. Hope you'll keep us updated on the business. Fascinating stuff. Flory Marquez of BlockFi. Some really smart products out there, Delano. I mean, if you are a long-term holder, you don't want to give that up, even if you have to, I don't know, pay tuition or buy a home. I would agree, Melissa. And I think this is a really interesting product. One, for, as you mentioned, for long-term holders that want to keep their coins and lend or be able to borrow based off of that. And as you mentioned, the price is volatile, but this is that steady interest rate uh, for the lender. And that's, that's something that's really interesting. And I think, you know, long-term for myself, I'm a holder long-term in, in Bitcoin, Ethereum, as mentioned previous, previously on the show. But this is just another area where we see more adoption. As you mentioned, the guests say that there's adoption and interest from institutional investors. So I'm curious to see how that that, uh, you know, one, turns their product and how we can, you know, as long-term holders, see some th sort of appreciation from them. If I'm a Jamie Dimon, a J.P. Morgan, or Brian Moynihan, a Bank of America guy, i got to be taking a look at this business model thinking, this, this is an interesting area. And you know they absolutely are. And, and, you know, BK, Brian Kelly, who, by the way, wrote the book on this literally in 2014, he recently said that gold's about a $10 trillion market cap uh, commodity, if Bitcoin were to garner 20% of that, you can do the math. Well, it got to a trillion today, and I can double 50,000. So a lot of people out there think a 20% market cap of gold, you're talking about a $100,000 coin. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of, I think Anthony Scaramucci the other night, I think on our network said he could see it there by the end of May. So there are a lot of reasons to be bullish here, despite the price appreciation. My concern, obviously, is that we've seen significant drawdowns over the last few years, and it's probably right to suspect we'll see one again. But with that said, 20% of the market cap of gold seems to be in the crosshairs. All right. Straight ahead on Fast Money, the new American investor. Did you order dinner in tonight? Do you have any idea how much that delivery service cost you? Hint, enough for another trade. We will explain. And SPACs are hot, so hot in fact that this artist investor will join us live next. SPAC madness has not only taken over Wall Street, it's taking over music, too. SPAC Dreams is the latest song from performing artist Cassius Cuvée and has logged nearly 100,000 views on YouTube. He's going to join us in just a moment. But obviously, he is a huge fan of Mr. Guy Adami. He mentions you by name, Guy, 
in, in this video. Tremendous. <laughs> and I found out about that through the great Carl Quintanilla. I just call him CQ, but he actually added me or something or, or name dropped. I'm not really sure about the lingo, but when I saw it, I, was, I felt so cool. I've never been cool in my life, and I'm in this SPAC video Guy making fun of Bonowin or something. By the yeah. way, I happen to love Bonowin. And as you know, I coined the nickname B-Icebreaker. But just being included in that group and that video, I mean, that's a cool, that might be the coolest thing that's happened to me since I started on Fast Money 37 years ago. Well, let's bring in the man who made that moment happen for you, Guy. <laughs> Cassius Cuvay <laughs> joins us now. Cassius, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. How you doing, Mel? Oh, great, great. Thanks so much for your time. What came? I'm curious. What came first, rapping or investing in SPACs? <laughs> Definitely rapping. I've been making music for a long time. Definitely. I just got into the stock market really seriously about uh, uh, about a year ago. A year ago. So what drew you in, and are you trading on Robinhood? I'm trading Robinhood Interactive Brokers. Yes, I started mostly on Robinhood. I think Robinhood's really user friendly, okay. especially to a new investor. So um, the song is called SPAC Dreams. Are SPACs, SPAC dream, yeah. SPACs are your specialty? That's that's sort of your, your core portfolio at this point? You know, I got to give a shout out to everybody in the SPAC game. Help me eat. Good. My portfolio. So uh, I definitely, um, I definitely like to. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, how big is your portfolio? There was a journal article that said you started with 250,000 and it's doubled. Is that right? Uh, it's, it, that was just the SPAC half of it. <laughs> So I've, I've, uh, I've done pretty well. I mean, you know, it's funny, you guys, everybody jumps right into it. It reminds me of my old song. Everybody pocket watching nowadays. I'm trying to get paid about a hundred ways. So I'm real diversified. I don't think we've ever had anybody actually sing slash rap on, on the show live before, Cassius. So you are a first here uh, in Fast Money history. We've actually had been having some technical difficulties with Cassius, unfortunately. unfortunately. So we'll try and uh, iron them out. But uh, he's done pretty well, as you can see, <laughs> in terms of the SPAC side of the portfolio. Delano, I'm curious, are you invested in any sort of the, the SPACs, either the SPACs to come or were the SPACs that have had mergers? Um, so if we get them back, I'm going to ask if you'll let me spit four or eight bars and see if you'll put me on the remix. But um, especially for this, for this, um, for this particular SPAC, um, for SPACs in general, I know it's a hot name. And a lot of people that are prospective clients or clients, they've asked me about it. And I think there's so much going out there, it's hard to cover all of them. Uh, but, you know, for myself, limited exposure. Um, I really want to understand the underlying business. I really understand what their potential, potential purchase and really understand the business itself. Um, so that's the biggest thing for me. I know it's a hot and sexy name. I really wanted to ask Cassius, you know, if this is more of a, a short-term play for the younger, newer investors, I should say, that are getting in, or if, you know, they, they see themselves investing in this for a longer period of time. I'd love to hear from Cassius on, on that. You know, he's back. So, so Cassius, back, what's, what's yeah. the answer to that? Is this short-term well, for you? No. Long-term on the ground floor. All right. Technology is just not working with us for, for Cassius. Um, Nadine, are you invested in any SPACs right now? Are you looking at SPACs? We did. We've been pretty heavily invested. But as Delano said, you have to understand a little bit about the type of businesses they might be going after, uh, the type of prices they might be willing to pay. Um, and, and therefore, it's not any SPAC at any cost. 
or any price, we have to really understand what we might be getting into. So that takes a bit of a due diligence to sift through them and then have more concentrated bets. So it's been uh, very good for us, I'd say. Um, and it's not something that I would say that you need to absolutely shy away from. But as Delano said, it's a bit about research on this. It's not just any spec. You know, Delano, I don't want to put you on the spot, but actually you put yourself on the spot. You said that you wanted to wrap a few bars uh, for him. So if you want to go ahead, because I know he, we are trying, trying to reestablish a connection, but I know he's listening. So if you wanted to do that now, oh, you, you are welcome to do that. Listen, you put me on the spot. I didn't get time to write pen and paper. You know, I really need to write pen and paper. I'm more about getting in tune with myself, light some candles, write my rhymes, get really into tune. And then I'll, then I'll be back. The next time you guys put me on, I have, I have, I'll have eight bars for you. Excuses, excuses, Delano. Cassius is back. He's on the phone. Cassius, are you yeah, in back, this for, for the long term? Yeah, this is definitely long term. What I was starting to say is that, you know, sustainable energy and ESG and stuff, that's really the future, you know, and uh, especially, you know, we're looking at a lot of people asking me about CCIV right now, right? That's a real hot spec right now. And uh, I just want to let everybody know, you know, I got diamond hands. Little Uzi Vert, he got a, a, a diamond in his forehead. I might have to get some implants in my hands because I'm holding. I'm holding forever. <laughs> CCIV, of course, being the spec that, that is expected to merge with Lucid Motors. Cassius, what are some of the other, um, you know, holdings in your portfolio that you feel the most conviction about? I definitely like DraftKings. Everybody knows I like DraftKings. That was the first SPAC I ever got way back when it was still a SPAC right before the reverse merger. Um, I definitely got that. Um, let's see. I, honestly, I'm in so many SPACs. I like them pre-LOI. Um, I got warrants. Um, I got some of the lowest warrants on CCIV out of anybody I know. <laughs> I got warrants for a dollar on CCIV. How many shares at 965? So I'm definitely in that one. Oh, man, I got a long list. If you guys follow me on Twitter, you'll see. All right. I, I am following you on Twitter. It sounds like you're pretty good at this, Cassius. So I'm, I'm curious where you get your ideas from, if you're on Wall Street Bets yourself or if you, if you just read a lot. Well, honestly, I watch, I watch you guys on CNBC a lot, Mel, <laughs> and also on Twitter. So I follow some of great accounts on Twitter. Uh, you know, SPAC Guru, I follow uh, Venture Investors. And uh, a lot, of, a lot of people in the in the in the SPAC community on Twitter, and they really have a lot of good information. SPAC Tiger, and so I definitely that's one of the reasons why I made the song because I'm getting a lot of information, and we all we all share and exchange information. Well, we love hearing from uh, viewers like you, Cassius, and and also we love hearing your songs. I'm curious what you're working on next. Also, I got a lot of stuff cracked for 2021. I appreciate you asking that. I've got a skit out I just put out right now. Uh, little parody of Coming to America. For all the fans of Coming to America, check out my YouTube page. It's for SPACs. If you love Coming to America, especially if you love Coming to America and SPACs, check it out. It's a little, it's a parody of the barbershop scene. Instead of arguing over what's the best boxer, they're arguing over what's the best SPAC. But I got a lot of hot music coming this year. I had big plans this year already, even without y'all blessing me. So I appreciate y'all. Dave, a favor. Can't nobody ever say nothing bad about you to me. I love you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Cassius. And one last question. Give us a stock. You, you mentioned the SPAC side of your portfolio. Give us a stock pick. Stock pick? Yeah. Um, boy, I, you know, I really like the semiconductor space uh, as far as the non-SPAC stuff um, because I really think that they're the future. They're going to be in everything. All right. Cassius, a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for bearing with us through all the uh, technical glitches. But it was great to, t to talk to you. All right. And I'll want, can I say one more thing? Sure. I'm going to be donating a lot of money to charity at the end of this year. Uh, my philanthropy is, is attached to my success. So for every YouTube subscriber I get, I'm going to donate a dollar to charity. I'm trying to get a million. 
that can see that's a big old check for a million dollars to charity at the end of this year. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Cassius Cuvet doing good work as well. Good work on the rat front. Good work on the charity side. Guy Dami, I know you're a fan of coming to America, actually. <laughs> I, I, anything, Eddie Murphy could read the phone book and I'll watch him do it. But coming to America, as a matter of fact, we just rented it from our local blockbuster over the weekend because my daughter never saw it. And it holds up today. And the sequel coming out is going to be ridiculous. And those barbershop scenes, I mean, I could watch those on replay. And I know you've never seen the movie, Melms. But you should go to your local blockbuster up there in uh, New York City, grab the movie, maybe get some popcorn and have a good old weekend. Yeah, there's one right next to the Radio Shack. Uh, Coming up, the beach body craze is coming to Wall Street and traders are working up a sweat over what one big name behind the deal could mean for the stock. And later, time for takeout. It's Friday night. We're getting hungry, but could ordering in cost you more than we realize? We've got much more on this Fast Money Special report right after this. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Check out shares of Forest Road Acquisition up more than 20% this week. The SPAC, advised by former TikTok CEO Kevin Mayer, is set to take beach body and, and mix fitness public. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got the details. Julia. Melissa, shares of Forest Road Acquisition Corp soaring on news that the same investment team is raising $300 million for another SPAC, Forest Road Acquisition 2. Now, shares of Forest Acquisition 1 have soared since Kevin Mayer and Tom Stagg's SPAC announced a $2.9 billion deal last week with fitness companies Beachbody and exercise bike company Mix Fitness. Mayer, who's taking a seat on the new company's board, telling me that there is unlocked value in the company's content. We all thought when we first looked at this company that perhaps the content would be ephemeral and not, not have a long-lasting value. But if you look at, if you look at the, uh, the usage of the library of the content that has been made you know, up to 15 years ago, it's still in the top 10 content being used uh, every year. So there's a huge library in place that is a, a great competitive advantage and a great uh, place source of enterprise value. The company sees potential to be like a more accessible Peloton. And Melissa, that stock shares are up 415 percent over the past 12 months. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Nadine, do you buy into um, that sales pitch that it's a that is a content company? You know, I like it. Uh, When you look at they have 2.6 million paid users, compare that to Peloton's 3 million, just above that. But the market cap differences, we're talking 2.9 billion versus 40 billion. So when I think about maybe unlocked value, I think that I could see it here. Um, Similarly, it's not just content. I think also when you look at it, um, they're selling product. They have a lifestyle, and it's quite interesting. All right. Coming up, we are almost done with the special hour Fast Money, and we are getting ready for dinner. (laughs) We will dive into the hidden costs of ordering in. Back in two. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. There is no doubt the pandemic's been good for food delivery, but is it more expensive than you actually think? Joining us, Gene Munster, founder and managing partner at Loop Ventures. Gene, good to have you with us. Hi, Melissa. When I read your report, I was feeling a little, I don't know, ripped off or I don't know what. I felt like I was just paying too much money. The average markup is 41 to 58 percent across platforms, Gene. 
It does, Melissa, and that excludes typically a, a 15% tip that they put in, all three major platforms put in. You got to back that tip out. Uh, adding insult to injury, that 15% tip is calculated on service and regulatory fees, essentially workarounds for what legislators have done to try to slow the growth of these fees. Maybe said a most simple way is that you are tipping on top of a tip when you do that. So uh, yes, that's right, 40 to call it 55%. When you factor in the tip, it's uh, more like an 85% markup. And I want to, you know, this came to our, our light as we've been watching some of the legislation that's happened, popped up around uh, local governments starting to cap some of these fees at 15%. And we thought this is a good move. And it turns out uh, that simply they're adding what is called a regulatory service charge. If you mm -hmm. look when you're checking out tonight, you'll see this. So uh, it is uh, more expensive than you think. Yeah, most people don't really read that fine print. Um, you can't get around a lot of the service fees. You can't get around, you know, fees that were put in by regulations. But there is an initial markup fee as well, which is simply just, you know, what the restaurant charges on the platform versus what they charge if you actually went to the restaurant. And that markup fee really got to me. That was 14 to 18 percent. Correct, Melissa. So exactly what this means, if you're going to purchase an item uh, through DoorDash, for example, their DashPass app, uh, and then versus just go directly for pickup at a restaurant. Yeah, it's 14, 18%. It's essentially a different uh, menu uh, that you're a different uh, rate card. And the reason is that if we think back a year and a half ago, recall that restaurants were struggling with these delivery services really taking all their profit. And so they just figured we're gonna create a whole separate pricing uh, scale. And as we have thought a lot about this pricing dynamic, I want to just point out two quick takeaways from mm -hmm. all of this uh, beyond just the, the cost. I think one takeaway is that for a lot of consumers, time is money. And to pay an extra 15 or 18 dollars and save 30 minutes of leisure time, this is our most valuable leisure time in an evening. That is a really good trade off. But most people don't have that luxury. And why that's important when you think about investing in like DoorDash or Grubhub, Uber Eats, uh, is that to get mass adoption, you really need to appeal to the masses. And right now, this is a luxury service uh, at best. Yeah, I mean, if you're paying 58% more, that's certainly a luxury. Um, we've got one minute, Gene, literally. So if I hear about this delivery pass thing, 10 bucks a month or so on some of these platforms, is that worth it to me as a consumer? It's not. You really, at the break-even point, is four times. It starts making sense at five times. It's just a few dollars a month. And what is most alarming, I think, as they pitch these, is free delivery. It's far from free. They nix out a small charge, a dollar and a half charge, typically. But all these other fees that we've talked about really rack up. At the end of the day, if you're going to do food delivery, it's going to uh, basically assume it's going to double the cost if you're going to go pick it up. Maybe worth a good trade. Uh, but I wouldn't go and do these passes. About 27% of DoorDash users do the subscription. I think it's going to be hard for them to grow that above 50%. Prime is at 80%, 85% huh. of U.S. households. It's not going to get there. Gene, thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you. <laughs> Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Guy, I don't know if you're ordering. I'm not going to order in. <laughs> I'm going to walk and pick it up. <laughs> I mean, you ask me, you know, I mean, what are the chances? I mean, I wouldn't even know how to begin to do Zero. a door dash. And come on, Melms. If I'm jonesing for a Chipotle burrito, extra chicken, no beans, I'm getting in my car and I'm driving to my local CMG. That's just the way it works. That's that's GG door dash. So buy that spec, Mel. <laughs> but in fit, but we got like 15 seconds, guy. 
Which of these stocks would you like, if any? Uh, DoorDash, I think, trades to 162. That's the average price target. I think it's overpriced at these levels, Mel. All right. Guy Adami, Nadine Turman, Delano Sapporo, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And thank you out there for watching this Fast Money special report on the new American investor.